What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Dr. Bert Karen. Bert is the author of Psychotherapy of Schizophrenia, Treatment of Choice, which is considered a classic in this field of psychiatry and psychology. He's the author of more than 160 publications, and he's been practicing psychotherapy since 1955. He's a diplomate in psychoanalysis, and he's been doing extensive work with people diagnosed with psychosis and schizophrenia. And so, Bert, I want to really welcome you to Madness Radio. It's an honor to have you here today. It's an honor to be here. And Bert, your name comes up again and again as a real leading figure in the development of theory and practice around meeting people where they're at, humanely, compassionately, engaging with them, using psychotherapy, using the relationship, using human connection, even when they're in extreme states, when they're struggling with psychosis, maybe they have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, where many, many people in the field would say no you can't do psychotherapy with people like that. They're too crazy. They're not in touch with reality. You've been the real strong, strong voice in the field of psychology and psychiatry saying that we have to treat people humanely. We have to engage with them, offer them psychotherapy just as we would anyone. And I also should mention that some of the language that we'll be using today comes from your own clinical background, and I just want people to bear with that use of traditional language and really think about the substance of what we're talking about, making connections with people. So, Bert, how did you get interested in working with um, people diagnosed with schizophrenia and psychosis? Well, when I started training, they said it was impossible to help them. And then I heard of somebody who said they could help them with psychoanalytic therapy, a man named Dr. John Rosen. Well, I worked with him. These were very treatable patients. I worked with three patients there, all of whom had been hospitalized for years and medicated and in some cases had shock treatments. And all three of these patients got better. So you were just um, inspired by the challenge of the fact that everyone had said that it was impossible to do psychotherapy, talk therapy with people diagnosed with schizophrenia. Was that it? Well, that's, that's it. And in fact, but there were people who said the opposite. And they were the much more interesting people. By that time, a lady named Frieda von Reichmann at Chestnut Lodge had written about how you treat schizophrenic patients with psychoanalytic therapy. Harry Stack Sullivan had written about it. Uh, so it wasn't unheard of. On the other hand, most of the field then as now has the bizarre notion that these are not treatable people. And it is a bizarre notion. There's a paper I wrote, and I recently gave it at another meeting, called An Incurable Schizophrenic. This was a man who was early in my career, uh, back in the 60s. He was working at a college. He went to see a psychiatrist. He got sicker. They put him on meds. He got sicker. They put him on more meds. He got sicker. Eventually, he was hospitalized. They put him on more meds. He got sicker. Then they told him and his wife he was incurable. His only hope was shock treatment, which probably wouldn't help him, but it was the only hope he had. A friend of his asked me, was there any hope for his friend? And I said, yes, what he needs is competent psychoanalytic therapy. And then the odds are he'll get better. And he said to me, will you talk to his wife? And I said, of course. She called me. And on my advice, she called down to the hospital and removed her permission for shock treatment, which was a good thing because they had him scheduled for the next morning. Then she went down to the hospital that day and took him out of there and they told her she was killing him. And they refused to tell her what meds he was on, which is itself is unethical. She drove directly to my office, and I had my first session as soon as she got there. Now, the man really was sick. He was not eating, he was not sleeping, and he was continuously hallucinating. 
So when you say hallucinating, what, what do you mean? What kind? I mean by hallucinations is that he saw and felt and heard things that were not there. He had hallucinations of burning in hell. And I don't mean that he talked about burning in hell. I mean of being burned in hell. Uh, the friend who had referred him to me in the first place said, did he ever tell you about the scar on his hands? And I said, no. He said, why don't you ask him about it? Well, the next session I said to him, do you have a scar on your hand? And he said, yes. There's a story my mother tells. I was five years old, and we were in a store, and I had, a, a, I had picked up a toy, and she said, where did you get that? And I said, the lady gave it to me. So she went over and asked the lady if she'd given it to me, and she hadn't. So she made me put it back, and she made me apologize. And then she took me by the hand and walked me back home. And I said, how far was that? Three blocks. And then we went upstairs to the apartment, which was on the third floor. And then she turned on the gas burner and held my hand in it to teach me not to steal. And he said, but it hasn't had any effect on me because I can't remember it. And I said, I have a different idea that what you can't remember has the most profound effect. Most of us can only imagine burning in hell, but you've actually been there. You don't always get a dramatic change with the correct interpretation, but in this case we did. After that conversation, his hallucinations of burning in hell stopped entirely. In that first week, if you look at all the symptoms, there's only one of his symptoms that would kill you, not eating. So I figured that's what I've got to change first. And I did what I have written about with patients who don't eat. I have never used the word anorexia in a paper. I don't like abstract words because they don't mean anything to, to patients and they don't really mean much to professionals except it makes them feel good to use them. The next session took place at an all-night restaurant, one of these places that looks like the men's room on the subway, you know, all white tiles. And he said, I can't go in there. They'll think I'm crazy. And I said, no, they won't. They'll think you're drunk. And he said, uh, but I'll throw up. And I said, so you think you're the first drunk who threw up here tonight? So we went in, and he protested about it, and I ordered breakfast. And I ate the breakfast. We talked about eating and problems in eating. I think around the second time, he took a, a little bit of black coffee. By the third or fourth day, he ate breakfast. And then he got mad at me and said, look, I'm paying for therapy, and all we do is come here and I watch you eat. So then we moved back to my office, and his eat, not eating wasn't, hasn't been a problem ever since. So what do you attribute that change to, just taking him to the restaurant? You take him to the restaurant, you do your therapy hour at the meal, not at some other time, and you either get the same meal served to you and him or order from the same menu. And then you talk about difficulties and the meanings of various problems. For example, other patients had taught me about poisoning fantasies. Many psychotics have the t terrible fear that they're going to be poisoned. It turns out that poison is simply something you eat and then you get hurt. And if you have a mother who resents having to feed you so that every time she feeds you, she is angry at you. When I had been at another place where I actually watched this mother taking care of the treatment house, uh, it was clear that if the patient cooked or if one of the attendants cooked, there was no quarrel. But every time she cooked and he ate, there was a quarrel. It was never about eating. It was about a different thing each time. But any time she cooked and he ate, he got hurt afterwards. And for an infant and a young child, if mother's angry, it's like being hit over the head with a hammer. And that's what poisoning fantasies are, a mother who hates feeding you. By the way, that's where the truth is. The truth is in the patient's. And if you listen carefully, and I refer to this as psychoanalytic therapy, which builds on Sigmund Freud, but if you read his papers, what you discover is he didn't invent his ideas, 
but he did pay very careful attention to what patients said. And he said the truth is not in our speculations, it's in what the patients talk about. So when people hear psychoanalysis, they think, oh, trying to uh, discover early childhood traumas or complexes or the Oedipus complex or different kinds of ideas from Freudian psychology. Do you think that that's where experiences called psychotic come from and where psychotic symptoms come from? Well, for if you just listen to psychotics, they'll talk about psychoanalytic ideas. And if they talk to you, then that's what the problem is. For example, when I first started, I thought of castration anxiety as an abstract idea. But when a psychotic patient covered his genitals with his hands and yelled at me, don't cut him off, Dad. And from then on, I took the idea of castration anxiety as real. That patient clearly was afraid of being castrated. And it turns out that most Freudian ideas are based on things people have said. Freud once said of himself that he was an explorer, and he discovered a new continent. And like any explorer, he had put the mountains in the wrong places, and the lakes in the wrong places, and the rivers in the wrong places. But later generations will correct my errors, as always happens in science. And if you read his papers, you do find that he is continually correcting what he said. Now, I keep getting amazed at these experts on Freud who really don't seem to ever read the guy. And what Freud felt was, quite clearly, there are things that push people around of which they're not aware, the unconscious. And secondly, that it's not an accident. Some things are out of consciousness because they're too painful to think about. And when you try to help people learn about it, they have what he called resistance. They seem to, again, not being aware they're doing it, they try to keep the stuff unconscious. And actually, these are what we now call defense mechanisms. And finally, the most important of this is transference, that people repeat feelings and experiences from their past without realizing that it was the past and as if it were things that are happening to them now. And as he said, anybody who takes those four concepts seriously is practicing psychoanalysis, even if they disagree with me in every other way. But it's quite clear people do have symptoms, and they don't know the cause of it. Well, like the guy who was afraid of being poisoned because his mother was angry at him. But once we discussed it, he, or, or even the guy who couldn't remember having had his hand held in a, on a burner by his mother teach him not to steal. He couldn't remember it, but it clearly caused the hallucination of burning in hell. So those are very useful ideas, and most of modern psychotherapy has actually been built, whether people call it Freud or not, on Freud's ideas. And as I've said, there's no such thing as a non-Newtonian physics, and there's no such thing as a non-Freudian psychology. There's a post-Freudian psychology, that is where people build on him and correct his errors, just as there's a post-Newtonian physics. As long as you're willing to listen and look at the evidence and pay careful attention to everybody you're trying to help. How do you actually do that? If you're sitting down with someone who seems like they're really in a different world, that they are talking with voices or people or creatures that aren't there who they're very withdrawn or they seem to be very, very preoccupied with ideas of being of mind control or being persecuted. How do you actually get them to the point to have this connection between their symptom and these childhood experiences that you're that you're describing are the key to why they're having those symptoms? How does actually the, the process of psychotherapy with someone experiencing this, how does it go? Well, it goes very simple. Usually in the first hour I say, what seems to be the problem? And then I listen to what they tell me is their problem, and I try to help them with that. And even if I don't think it's their problem, eventually they'll tell me the rest of it. Now, if they're delusional, like you described, they hear voices, they're, what you do is ask them to tell you about it. Get them to tell you in as much detail 
as, as you can what's going on. You can't understand something if you haven't a clue as to what's going on. And if they describe their uh, delusions and what's going on, then as they describe it, things seem to make sense. It begins to make more sense to them. What, after all, are hallucinations? Hallucinations are something you see or hear or feel when, in fact, there's nothing there to see or hear or feel, right? Although sometimes they're distortions of things that you... But what are they? Well, the truth is all of us hallucinate, except we do it when we're asleep, and we call it dreaming. And Freud wrote a book back in... Oh, around 1890, about the psychology of dreams, which is still the best book on the subject. But the point is that he wasn't interested in dreams. He was interested in neurotics and people who had various symptoms. Uh, originally, he, he worked with hypnosis, you know, suggestive hypnosis. You're going to get better. And that worked, except that the, the symptoms always came back after, or a new symptom came in its place. Then one day a patient said to him, why don't you shut up and just let me talk? And if you do, I think I'm going to say something important. So he shut up, let her talk, and she said something important. And he suddenly realized he'd really, something important had happened in front of him. And that led to the method of free association, which asks patient to say what comes to mind and following their thoughts. And, he, and that got to, to their problems. And one of the things he noticed was that as people just said everything, they occasionally talked about dreams. And when they did, it often led to unconscious problems much faster than anything else. So he got interested in dreams. And as he saw it, a dream is when we're sleeping and something tends to disturb it. And it could be something outside, like... Uh, you know, a noise, or uh, and then that'll be incorporated in the dream when we stay asleep. But it can also be impulses and wishes that are disturbing to the dream, and that's that's what, of course, got him interested, and you could discover these unconscious things more quickly by taking each element of the dream and asking what comes to mind. That's all. There's no magic to this. It really comes to listening to people. Essentially, Hallucinations are basically waking dreams, and they can be understood by his notions of what dreams are about. So you listen to their dreams, you listen to their delusions, you listen to their hallucinations. When they tell you something that doesn't make any sense to you, you ask them, tell me about it. What comes to mind when you think of blank or blank or blank? And then when you get associations, often the pieces fit together very nicely. Bert, tell us about your um, experience working with patients using these ideas, because this is not just some Freudian orthodoxy that you're putting out. You've actually practiced this and actually seen people get better by taking this approach. And also tell us why you think it's so difficult for people to do psychotherapy with people who are having these experiences and why it's kind of fallen out of, of favor. These people are very uncomfortable. They are terrified. And you don't want to feel as terrified as they do. They may be angry. They may be, uh, you don't want to know all that. They may be sad. They may, and by the way, they're always terrified. And one of the things which is very helpful to almost all of them, and people have said that they weren't sure anything else I said made a difference, but uh, in the first session or so, I will say, I am not going to let anyone kill you. And they've said they could see the patients react to this. They're afraid of being killed. They're afraid of dying. Wouldn't that, and the trouble is, you know, you and I are, have been terrified. And we're supposed to be terrified for a few minutes, maybe for half an hour. We're not supposed to be terrified for weeks or months continuously. And that's the experience of someone diagnosed with schizophrenia. That's I mean, absolutely true. That's that, exactly right. That, I mean, that really resonates with my experience. I mean, I when I started to unpack some of the things that I had been going through, it was this chronic, ongoing state of being afraid, not just of a person or a situation, but of life itself. Like, everything was terrifying to me. And I, I have been able to really connect that with... Um, experiences in, in my childhood, traumatic experiences. But I also, you know, 
definitely feel like the diagnosis, that label has made the situation worse for me. It becomes like an insult. What what do you think about that, the diagnostic terminology? The diagnostic terminology is a problem. The word schizophrenia, as I have said at the American Psychological Association, uh, I have never used the word schizophrenia for a patient unless it's already in the record. Because the moment you use that word, their boss will never give them a promotion. They will never get ahead. People will shun them. And of course, look, most mental health professionals have the notion that these people never get better. And in fact, if the treatment you give them is to medicate them, which makes them more tolerable, but that's all. And what we now know, the evidence is quite clear. If you medicate schizophrenics, they become more tolerable and they never get better. We have more people who are totally disabled by schizophrenia today per capita than when the first so-called antipsychotic medication was introduced. And nobody's been paying any attention to this. There's a, a brilliant book by a journalist named Robert Whitaker called The Anatomy of an Epidemic, which describes all this. Yeah, he's been a, he's been a guest on Madness Radio many times, yes. <laughs> so the reason that we're having such bad recovery rates, why so many people continue to be chronically suffering, is because of the medications you're saying. That's right, because nobody's trying to understand them Now, I did some research comparing medication and psychotherapy for schizophrenic patients. And our finding was that the best results occurred with psychotherapy with no medication at all. The next best was psychotherapy with medication initially, but withdrawing the medication as rapidly as the patients could tolerate psychotherapy plus medication that was continued was better than medication alone, but the longer you followed, it was not nearly as good as the patients where the medication was withdrawn, and certainly it wasn't as good as those who just got psychotherapy. That's what patients need. Remember that first case, I said what his friend needs is psychoanalytic therapy, and then the odds are he will uh, he will get better. Furthermore, that f- when I started that patient, the first thing I did was get him off his medications. And then I worked with him very intensively, seven days the first week, six days the second week, five days the third week, four days the fourth week, and then we went to three. We stayed there. Six months after we started, he was back at work teaching at a good college. Is that a key part of what you're you're describing? Because usually when people think psychotherapy, they think one hour a week with someone, but you're saying pretty intense ongoing contact with people. The more work you have to do, the more time it takes, you know? If I'm gonna build a bridge and the bridge goes across a, a creek that's two feet wide, it's not gonna take me too long to build a bridge. If it, if it goes across a river half a mile wide, it's gonna take a hell of a lot of work to build a bridge. And the more intensely you work, the more often you work with people, the easier it is to get a lot of work done. These people are very sick. Now, three times a week is really probably good enough for most people most of the time. In fact, wait a minute, there's even data on this. In Switzerland and in Italy, a man named Gaetano Benedetti found that if you made psychotherapy available to severely schizophrenic patients, they had excellent results in 80% of the cases. The number of sessions was anywhere from one session a week to five sessions a week, but the median frequency was three times a week, and the median frequency was, I'm not sure, it was somewhere between three to five years. But these were very severely schizophrenic people when they got started. And they were being treated by new therapists, but under supervision by very competent therapists. So you're making it sound very easy. You just listen to people, you ask them more about their experience, and then you figure out how to trace it back to some kind of childhood trauma. Surely there must be something more to it than that. 
Oh, but no, not really, except it isn't one trauma. I mean, it's a whole bunch. It's a whole set of life. Something happens for most people. There are things that can happen to us that are so horrible, they would drive anybody psychotic. Some of the battlefield experiences in World War II were like that. But for most people, something happens when they're an infant, and that changes how they experience things after that. Then something else happens, and that changes their fantasies and how they interpret things. And there are a series of things that keep accumulating, and when they get to the point where they really feel they are about to die, that's when they go psychotic. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Dr. Bert Karen. He's the author of Psychotherapy of Schizophrenia, Treatment of Choice. He's the author also of 160 publications. He's been practicing psychotherapy since 1955, including specializing with people diagnosed with psychosis and schizophrenia. Give us another example of someone that you worked with successfully who was experiencing psychosis. This guy was somewhat, is really scary. Uh, when I was the chief psychologist at Annandale Reformatory in New Jersey for male adolescent, this guy who was psychotic started psychotherapy with a psychiatrist there. This was back in the days when psychiatrists did psychotherapy. These days, most of them don't do psychotherapy because, unfortunately, they get paid a lot more money to just medicate people. But that's another problem in our field. But it is a problem, the financial problem. He started therapy with this guy and mentioned having murdered three people. The guy tried to turn him in and discovered that the only way he could be convicted was if he confessed. Now, he was psychotic, but he was not about to confess to a crime. And I treated him because it was the only way to protect society. He had committed three successful murders. Uh, there was no way to connect him with his murders. There was no way to protect society. The psychiatrist recommended maximum sentence, which his crime was breaking and entering. The maximum sentence would have been 18 months. And if you know anything about reformatories, he would come out a better trained criminal. And that's the only change it would make in him. As the kids used to tell me, the gangs in Philadelphia won't hire you until you've been in jail once because they don't think you know your trade. So I took him because it was the only way to protect society. So this is kind of our worst fear stereotype of the madman on the loose in society that you're describing. Yes, yeah, he is absolutely. When I say, and of course, I found him disgusting. And I felt he didn't deserve therapy because there aren't enough good therapists. But on the other hand, it really was, as far as I could see, the only way to protect society. And we worked together, and he came to one session, and he was talking along, and I'm listening carefully, and he had hidden a nail in his pocket. And he took the nail out and jammed it into my knee. At which point, I blew my stack. I jumped up, I blew my stack, I offered to throw him the hell out of the office. This was a third floor office. And I, I said, I'm gonna blow you, I feel like I'm gonna throw you out of this office and not out the door. So after I blew up, then I started to think and I said, look, why did you do this? I'm the only person in this place who doesn't hate you. What's so scary about my not hating you that you have to go this far to make me hate you? Well, he said he didn't know, but he had told me enough about his life by this time that I pretty well knew. And I said, well, look, I think you keep trying to pretend that your father's a good guy. But he isn't a good guy. He's a rotten son of a bitch. And you're trying to prove that everybody else is worse so that you can keep on believing that he's a good guy. And then we got from there to his telling me more things. Like after a beating by his father, he was walking confused. And that's the first time he injured somebody seriously. 
he saw somebody on this working on a scaffolding, and he he thought I could knock that scaffolding out, and I'd be out of here before anybody knew. And he did. The scaffolding collapsed. The man broke his leg, and he told me about this. I asked him what happened just before it, because when people have a symptom, one thing that's a clue is, well, what was going on right before it? And usually there's a connection. And he said, nothing. And then he said, oh, yeah, well, I was leaving the I had been wandering the streets sort of in a daze. It was right after a beating from my father. <laughs> and you'll notice each of the people, each of his victims was an older man. But of course, he made no connection between his murders and his anger at his father. The psychiatrist said, give a maximum sentence, which would have only been 18 months. And I said, no, see if he holds together for a month and then parole him with mandatory psychotherapy. Well, I left the place after six months. He did come back there two or three years later. He was still earning a living by breaking and entering but he wasn't killing people anymore. And he felt and I felt that it was a successful psychotherapy. Do you feel that you have a gift or a talent for this kind of work that allows you to reach people and make these connections whereas other therapists might not be able to? Strangely enough, I used to feel that I'd probably be a lousy therapist. But I was working on my thesis and I was working for a guy named Sylvan Tompkins and I said to him, you know, everybody who's really contributed to our understanding of the human personality has been a clinician. And I wonder if I should do a clinical internship. And then I wrote to uh, several places. All of them accepted me. But this place where they were working with psychotics intrigued me because everybody said that I, they, they don't get better. But after I was there a short while... I found myself writing papers about what the patients had been talking about that isn't in the literature. And the, the three patients I was involved with all got better, even though they'd all been hospitalized for years. What were some of the things that wasn't being written about in the literature? Well, that you could talk to schizophrenics, that they weren't incurable, that even after years of being around and hospitalized, you could reach them, that you could get patients eating when they didn't eat. You could get patients who were violent so they wouldn't hurt anybody. And by the end of that year, I was convinced I was a therapist. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to intuit this. You just have to listen to people. You just assume that everything they say is meaningful. The only problem is you don't know what it means. And they don't know what it means. But if you listen... Yeah, and very often, you know, when people are psychotic and they, they talk what sounds like gibberish, if you listen carefully, all of a sudden in the middle of it, they'll tell you something straightforward that's easy to understand. Like, my mother hated me and wanted to kill me. And then you're supposed to forget they ever said that. Well, suppose you don't forget what they said. When they say something meaningful, if you pick that up, and respond to it. What happens? Well, what happens is they start talking more and more. Somebody has written about, what do you do with a patient who doesn't talk at all? And what he said is, you do this. You describe what's going on. I'm Dr. So-and-so. You're Henry Jones. We're sitting here. You're not saying very much. Uh, you've moved your hand. You describe what the patient's doing, and you may imitate it, if they're not saying anything, you may, if they have an facial expression, you describe it and you do the same thing. And then if they make a noise, you repeat the noise. And you keep doing that until in the middle of the noises, there's a real word. Then you just repeat the real word and you don't repeat the other. And then in the middle of the, these just single words, they suddenly give you a sentence or more that makes sense. Well, now you repeat that. And within usually three or four sessions, the patient is talking to you freely, and you can then do therapy the way you knew how to do therapy. But the one thing you know is the patient is aware of everything you do. Catatonics hear and see and feel everything that's going on. They just don't move. And the reason they don't move is because they feel like they will die if they move. And so it's helpful to tell them I'm not going to let anybody kill you.
And it is helpful to say you're safe here. They may not believe you, but bit by bit they begin to believe you. And when they do, they come out of it. Now, these days, most patients come in. They've been told you have this genetic physiological disorder, which is incurable, and with the best of modern treatment, by which is meant medication, we can make you tolerable to most people most of the time. Well, there's nothing in there to make anybody feel hopeful. And every step of this is not true. It is not genetic. There's no evidence for it. It is not basically physiological. There's no physiological changes except those induced by the medications. And it is not incurable. All you need is a, a decent attempt to treat you on the notion that it's genetics. You'll hear this nonsense. An experiment has been carried out. There's a place called Nazi Germany. And before they built the death chambers for Jews, they used them first on mental patients. And for several years, every schizophrenic and other serious mental disorder in the whole country was killed. Well, anybody who, if you talk to a veterinarian, the effect on the next generation, if these were dogs, would be dramatic. Do you know what the rate of schizophrenia in the next generation was? Exactly the same as it was before the first patients were killed. It made no difference at all. And that's an experiment that no rational person would have carried out, but it was carried out. And these are not genetic disorders. They are based on problems in living. And if I have never met a psychotic individual whose life, when I understood it, would not have driven me psychotic. And I would have exactly the same symptoms they have. So why do you think that some people seem to go through difficult experiences and become psychotic and other people seem to go sim through similar experiences and not have those problems? Well, it depends on what the rest of their life was like and what the, the symptom, what, what the difficult experience means. If you've had a very good life, then it takes a hell of a lot more to cause the same symptoms. If you've had a very fragmented, difficult life, you become much more vulnerable, and then it takes what looks like less. But in every case, when you know the person's life, and every person I have ever worked with, I would have exactly the same symptoms they have if I had had their life. Do you ever feel at a loss when you're working with people or not knowing or, or not being sure that they're going to get better after meeting with them for months and months? Oh, sure. That's part of it. I feel at a loss. I feel despair. I feel terror. I feel and because, in fact, they feel at a loss and you resonate with their feelings. And when you're feeling very unpleasant feelings, one of the thoughts is, is this something the patient is going through? Now, that doesn't mean it necessarily is, but it may well be. And, and so it's usually helpful to say, I wonder if you are feeling hopeless. I wonder if you're feeling depressed. I wonder if you're feeling very angry right now. And guess what? More often than not, they'll say, yes, of course. Isn't it obvious? Well, of course, it isn't obvious. And do you feel confused? Of course you feel confused. Do you feel all the nasty feelings they feel? Yes, of course you do. And it's all information. It isn't just happening. It's information about what's going on. If you make use of it, you will help them. How do you work with people who seem like they're going through so much suffering that it's very difficult for them to even come to an appointment or to say that they're interested in help who are just so in their own world that they're just causing a lot of disruption or difficulty or making people around them or their family really scared? In that case, you may not be able to. Now, you know, at times I've worked in hospitals, then they don't have a choice. Trouble is that these days in hospitals, all they are interested in is keeping you for a few days at a very high price and medicating you and then dumping you. And after they've gone through that, patients very often, if they think they have a choice, will choose to talk to you. And you can tell them, look, you know, you don't have to talk to me, but you know what's going to happen to you. And, you know, you can make, you can choose to have that happen to you. I won't do this to you, but you can do this to yourself and there's nothing I can do to stop you.
And that's about all you can do is to tell them, there's nothing I can do to stop you. You can get yourself hospitalized. You can get yourself shock treatment. You can get your, but it would be bad for you. And I wouldn't do that if I were you. And usually they, they understand that. They don't want those things to happen to them. And they'll tell you they don't have any choice. And you say, yes, they do. The, the notion that, well, if they don't do anything, you know, why, how would, would anything bad happen to them? And you can say, well, look, it has. You've ended up in this hospital. And, when, you know, and one thing you can do is after they've been hospitalized, you can even tell them, look, when you get out of the hospital, we can start real treatment. For people who are taking medications, do you work with reducing or having them come off the medications, or are they able to work meaningfully in psychotherapy while they're taking medications? What I tell them is this. I will never ask you to give up anything you need. However, the odds are that if you talk to me, sooner or later, you'll come off your medication. That's all I need to say. In about half the cases... And oftentimes it takes a couple of months before they do this. They'll tell me that they stopped their medication some time earlier, but they were just, they didn't believe any mental health professional would let them do it. And they don't tell their families because their families will want them hospitalized. Now, in the case I gave you of the guy that I treated back in the 60s, there I just took him off the medications. Uh, he was a mess. He wasn't making many decisions for himself. His wife and friends had to take turns babysitting him for the first month or so. And he certainly had no desire to go back on them since all they had done was drive him crazy. And do you think that there's a cross-cultural difference here that in some societies experiences would be called psychotic and other societies they would be tolerated? And how do you deal with those differences that are cultural? There are cultures, for example, where people hear voices or hallucinate, and it's considered normal. But in those cultures, you will find that the normal people only do those under culturally sanctioned conditions, like as part of a ceremony or as they go into the desert for a, a growing up sir. But they, the point is they only do it in the appropriate circumstances. People who are sick do it because they don't have any control over it at all. And so it is quite different. And all, how would you know the difference? By just talking to your patients. Find out what they say about it. If they tell you that I get these things and they're horrible, and I don't know what causes them, I don't know why, and they don't make any sense, then they're a symptom. If, on the other hand, they say, well, I went to the ceremony, and part of the ceremony, they gave me psilocybin, and we had tom-toms, and we danced around, and then I saw this or that, and then you say, how do you feel about it? And they said, fine. Then only you'd have to be crazy to treat them as if that was a psychotic symptom. Do you think sometimes people are going through spiritual processes of awakening to maybe psychic abilities or paranormal or mystical awareness? For example, some years ago, I had a man who used to rise up out of his body and go out, and he told me it in the first session. Like astral projection or something. Yeah. He said to me, uh, you don't believe me. Now, if I told him I didn't believe him, we could have had a fight right there, and he would have left therapy. And I said, I find it very doubtful, but I wasn't there, and you were. So tell me about it. Now, that's all I had to do. At that point, he was ready to talk to me about it. And we talked about it. And then six months later, he said to me, he talked about having an out-of-body experience when he rose toward the moon. And the moon looked like a face smiling at him. And I said, I have an idea. And he said, what is it? And I said, it's not your way of understanding this. He said, yeah, but what is it? And I said, it's really not your way of understanding it. And he said, look, cut it out. What's... And I said, well, when you said it looked like a face smiling at you, it felt like a mother. And he finished the sentence, picking an infant up in her arms. And then he started getting all excited about that experience and all of his other out-of-body experiences. And they now made more sense in terms of them being repetition of experiences from childhood. So you work primarily with individuals. What about working with families or seeing the 
the meaning of psychotic experiences as being in the social context or the family context? Well, number one, it does have meaning, but it's true. I was trained to work with individuals, and that's what I work with. I always allow spouses and parents to have one confidential session with me. After that, they can contact me because they get worried by things the patient does or they want advice. So they can contact me. But any time they talk to me or I talk to them, I will tell the patient everything we talked about. Now, I make it clear that the patient has absolute confidentiality. Nothing a patient says to me will I tell their parents or anyone else without checking with them. Even when I write a form for to an insurance company, I will always read it to the patient to make sure it's okay with them if I say these things. So the patient knows that what they say is absolutely confidential and that they will know what their wife or husband or mother or father have said to me and what I've said to them. What about when people are having um, experiences that would be called manic that are more episodic or intermittent, like they just go through the sudden burst of wild energy and they're not sleeping and they're just on these very, very extreme trips and they're very, very hard to connect with, much less have a conversation with? You try to make sense of what's going on. Now, in my experience, it was sometimes it's very possible when they're talking, they talk like they're talking nonsense. And they often talk, they often laugh while they're doing it. And they often seem like they're happy, but they're not. If you pay attention to what they're saying, what they're saying is often god-awful. And if you just reflect what they're saying, as if you take it seriously, very often the manic state disappears and they get very depressed. I could say, gee, here's this guy who was feeling good, and now you've you, you made him depressed. What kind of therapy is this? But now you're dealing with the real problem. The manic attempt is really a, an attempt to uh, compensate for the depression, to avoid the depression. And it usually involves a lot of anger. And they usually know that when they're manicky, it scares the shit out of other people. And if you listen to them, it'll turn out they know it scares other people, and they enjoy it. There are often people, they want to scare, although they won't take responsibility for it. Now, sometimes with manicky people, you can't control them. But the one thing we know about manicky people and depressed people, we've known this for many, many years. If you don't do anything with them except keep them in a safe place, 80 to 90% of them will get completely better without any kind of treatment. Just keep them from hurting themselves or anybody else. Depression in general seems to be self-limiting because the depression is more central than the manic state. If you can just keep them safe, they will get better uh, in almost all the cases. However, when they're manic-y, they, they really don't act. They don't want to stay in therapy, and they'll get themselves in trouble, and then they'll go into a hospital. And, of course, you then may or may not get a chance to really work with them. But if, you, if they'll come in and you get a chance to work with them and you can tolerate it, they'll get better. In fact, I must tell you, damn near anybody who has problems, if they'll come in and try to work with you and you do your best to understand them, which mean, doesn't mean you will understand them. The odds are you won't understand them. You may not understand them for six months or a year. But you do your best they will get better. Almost everybody in real therapy gets better. And that's something most mental health professionals don't know, although they should. Well, what would you say to someone who's listening who's thinking, well, except the fact that psychosis is a sign of a terrible, terrible illness, it's a, it's a disease in the brain that's just going wild, and you actually have to medicate people because this psychotic disease will actually cause damage to their brain and damage to their mind if it's left untreated. Is that just a fear tactic that's been established? It's a fear tactic that's been sold by the drug companies and by those psychiatrists who know they can make three times as much. In fact, they can make up to five times as much money by medicating everybody. There is no biological damage. There is no uh, metabolism problem except those produced by the medications. The whole notion that 
psychosis is anything but a state of chronic terror and the defenses against the state of chronic terror. That's all there is to it, but that's a lot. Human beings are not intended to be terrified for weeks or months on end, or in some cases for years. We are not built to take that. Are you hopeful that the profession can change and people can start to get more humane responses, including psychotherapy? Yeah, sure. Back in the 60s, when I first came to Michigan, uh, if I didn't take a patient in therapy, I felt, oh my God, what's going to happen to them? And the alternatives were always awful. Now, in the part of Michigan and in the other parts, there are, in every major city, at least half a dozen people that I can send a patient to and the odds are overwhelming the patient will get better, where they'll get decent treatment. And so you do what you can do. You treat the people you can treat. You train the people you can train. And it's changing, but it changes unfortunately slowly. But it is changing and, and the change is in the right direction. Bert, we don't have much time left. How can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about your work or send you a message? They can call me. I'm in the telephone directory. I live in East Lansing, Michigan. And if I can answer your question in a way that's helpful to you, it's well worth both your time and mine. Uh, Dr. Bert Karen, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Uh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Bert Karen. He's the author of Psychotherapy of Schizophrenia, Treatment of Choice, which is considered one of the classics in the field of psychology. He has more than 160 publications, and he's been practicing psychotherapy since 1955, including with people diagnosed with psychosis and schizophrenia as a diplomate in psychoanalysis. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. <laughs>